listening to the Destiny Community Church Podcast. Today, we continue with week four of our series, Old School. Somebody say old school. Old school. Now listen, I'm, I'm about preached out right now, so I'm going to need your help. Are you ready? Can you go with me on this? All right, all right. In the first week of the series, we talked about returning to the well-worn paths of Christianity, the things that got us here. The second week, we talked about the responsibility of carrying our own load and not expecting someone else to do it for us, but relying on the power of God to help us carry it. Last week, we looked at God's design for human sexuality, and, and, and I want to say this to you. Thank you for all of the encouraging comments, the calls, the emails, the cards, um, even from the women at the FWRC. Um, just so much encouragement, because I know that a message like last week can easily, easily go awry. I know that. I know that. There's no doubt in my mind that we, we teetered on the edge there. I know. I know that that happens. And I'm confident that last week was received in the spirit in which the deliverer intended. Uh, and I thank you so much. Um, I have not had one negative comment. And that, that means a lot to this pastor. Amen. It means we're growing. We're maturing in Christ. Amen. Amen. Now, let me say this. <laughs> This is, this is not a disclaimer. I just, I'm just kind of throwing this out there. If last week was your first week at DCC and this week is your second week, <laughs> bless your heart. <laughs> I promise you it's not always like this. It's not. But today is another one of those days that it's heavy. I'm, I'm letting you know it is heavy. And here's what I do promise you is that we're, we are spirit-led here. And if the Spirit of God leads us in a direction, we're going to follow that, okay? This is not that cookie-cutter church that, that we're, we're just going to preach you happy all the time, okay? We have those moments. And I believe by the end of this, we're going to find joy in the Holy Spirit, amen? But, but I'm letting you know today is another heavy subject. Um, back when I was growing up, the, the old school preachers used to preach on the subject of hell often. Anybody grow up in a church like that? Yep, yep. They, they, they love to preach on hell. They preached hellfire and brimstone. Sometimes it came across as judgmental, and, and even at times it, it felt condemning. I, I understand that. Nevertheless, the topic of hell was not avoided. If anything, it was used as a tool to nudge people towards the salvation of Christ. And, um, and, and that's exactly what I'm going to do today is I'm going to attempt to help point us to the cross of Christ and, and how that brings um, everlasting life to those that call upon his name. According to the Pew Research Center, 73% of Americans believe in heaven. 73% believe in heaven. Only 40% believe that unbelievers will spend eternity in hell. So only 40% of America believes that unbelievers will spend eternity in hell. Only a half of 1%, that's 0.5, only a half of 1% of people believe that they are going to hell. Okay? So 0.5% of the population believes that they are going to hell. And, and so let me, let me kind of break that down for you and tell you what that means. That means that in their minds, that 0.5% of the population, they have reserved hell for the really bad, evil people of this world. You get that? They've reserved hell. Like the only people going to hell are, are like the worst people on the planet. That's really what they think. Like, you know what I mean. Like rapists, murderers, terrorists, Democrats, Republicans. <laughs> Depending on which side of the aisle you're on. I, I name both. I name both. Um, 
you know, it's, it's the people that you really, really think are just awful people. That's, that's who, who, in our minds, we've reserved hell for those people. And, and Jesus had a different, he had a different opinion on this. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, he said, enter by the narrow gate. Here's his instructions to us. He says, enter by the narrow gate. Okay, get this mental picture. It's not wide. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. So if if you want to go to, to eternal destruction, that gate is wide. That path is wide. He said, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. I'm telling you, this is heavy, church. This, this, This is weighty. Jesus said that the way to eternal life, it's narrow. And he says those that find it are few. Now, now I I can hear the critic right now. Someone may say, you're old school and narrow-minded with your beliefs and convictions. Maybe so. Maybe I am. Maybe I am old school. Maybe I am narrow-minded. But the gate that I'm trying to get into is narrow according to what Jesus said. And so I don't have time. I don't have time to, to create a, an inflated gospel that, that is trying its best to include ev- everyone in their sin. Now listen, the forgiveness of Christ is for everyone. You need to understand that. No matter what you've done in your life, no matter how bad, listen, it doesn't matter how bad you are or how good you think you are. Without Jesus, it's a level playing field. And, and so we've got to be careful because as it relates to eternity, we have to be careful that we don't become so inclusive that we exclude them from heaven and they don't even know that we're, we're excluding them from heaven because our theology is all messed up in the process. Does that make sense? When I was in 11th grade, I walked into English class one day and my teacher, Miss Wheeler, and, and her daughter was in, in first service today, and um, but Miss Wheeler was sitting at her podium at the front of the classroom where she would often teach from, and she was wearing a black dress and a black veil. I'll never forget this day. It was so odd. She looked like she was going to a funeral, like an early 20th century funeral at that. She, she black dress, black veil, and she said nothing as we all walked into the classroom to find our seats. Normally, we would walk into the classroom, and we'd be cutting up. We'd be making jokes. We'd be talking, chatting, you know. And not this day, because as soon as you walked in, it was somber. I mean, it was just one of those moments that, that no one knew what was happening. We all slid into our desk, and we just waited. The first bell rang, and she just sat there. She didn't do anything. The next bell, a few minutes later, the next bell rang. No one's joking. No one's cutting up. Everyone is just staring at her, trying to figure out what's happening. And that tardy bell rang, and as soon as it did, she looked up, and she just began reading a book. That's all she did. She just began to read And there was no introduction given. There was no explanation that was offered. She just started reading the book. And the book that she was reading was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of this. This is a classic. And and she started reading, public school, by the way, she started reading Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And this is a, a transcribed sermon by American theologian and pastor Jonathan Edwards. This sermon has been called uh, the catalyst to the great um, uh, awakening movement and possibly the most famous sermon ever delivered on U.S. soil of all time. Like this is the most famous sermon. 
he preached this message the first time to his own congregation in, in Southampton, Massachusetts, but the most famous delivery of this sermon is when Edwards was asked to be a guest speaker on July 8, 1741 at a church in Enfield, Connecticut. It was there that he, he took the pulpit under the pastor's um, invite to a church that had been unresponsive to the, to the Great Awakening. Like everyone else around them, people are coming to know Christ. There is this, this huge movement that has started in that region. And, 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 and churches, people are responding, but not this church. They, they were not responding to the message of the gospel. They were set in their ways. And, and the purpose of, of Jonathan Edwards and his sermon that night was to point out the horrors of hell, the dangers of sin, and the terrors of dying without Jesus. It was, it was, it was dark. It, it, was, it was rough. I mean, it, 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 it worked. It worked. That night, what he preached, it worked because it was reported that during his delivery of this sermon, people in the audience started interrupting him, asking things like, what shall I do to be saved? Or what shall I do for Christ? Some people just yelled out, ah, I'm going to hell. And they were terrified because of the message that he was preaching. And the Holy Spirit swept through that church and, and a church that was unresponsive to the gospel, now they, they, they were all flooding to the altars. And throughout the years, this sermon has been criticized largely in part of the title, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I get it. It's, it's tough. It's hard. Um, I, I'll admit, and I just reread this last night. I, I walked in, I sat down in my chair, and, and I, I read this whole thing sitting there last night. I reread it again. And I looked at Mandy and I said, oh, that's one of the heaviest sermons I've ever had to read, ever had to, I mean, it, it's just, it's tough. And, and I'll admit that although <clears throat> the overall message aligns with Scripture, there are numerous gray areas that I believe in his passion, Edwards exercised some creative liberties that are not scripturally sound. So I'll admit that to you. However, no one can deny the effectiveness because it worked. People flocked to the altars. Sinners found forgiveness that night. Lives were changed for eternity. Amen? Jude chapter 1, verses 22 and 23 in your New Testament, it says this. And you must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. Rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. Show mercy to still others, but do so with great caution, hating the sins that contaminate their lives. Now, I grew up on the King James Version of the Bible. Now, I'll, I'll be honest with you. There are some other versions of the Bible that are just much easier to read that I study these days. But most of the scriptures that I started memorizing at a, at a, as a young kid, they've stuck with me through the years, and they're King James. So most of the time, that's what comes back to my remembrance. But I want you to listen to verse 23, verse 23 of Jude chapter 1 from the King James. Here's what it says. And others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. Others save them with fear, pulling them out of the fire. That is exactly what happened that night in 1741 when Jonathan Edwards presented this message. It, it, it invoked fear. I guess one could say that Jonathan Edwards used pyrophobia. That's the intense fear of fire. He used that to get their attention that night. Last year, church, I listened to two sermons on hell from two modern-day preachers, which, by the way, is extremely hard to find. 
Google it. Try to find preachers today that preach on hell. It's a unicorn. And and these two preachers that I listened to last year preach on hell. It was two different deliveries, two different styles, two different hearts. And to be honest, two wrong perspectives, from my opinion and what I read from Scripture. One felt literal to the Scriptures, which I can appreciate. I, I want it to be literal to the Scriptures, but it was heartless. It was full of anger at the same time. It was almost as if the preacher wanted the sinner to go to hell. And some of us grew up on that type of preaching. We know what that feels like. The other, it felt too liberal and not literal enough. There, were, there was no urgency because hell was more of a state of mind than it was a physical place of torment. Um, both of these mindsets, church, they scare me. Both scare me, and, and in my opinion, they do more damage than they do good. Now, I need you to, to understand this. Everyone in the room, hear me out, because if, if this is uncomfortable for you right now, this is not an enjoyable subject to preach. Here's, here's the dilemma that we have as pastors. One of the complexities of preaching is trying to convey truth and grace at the same time. Because sometimes the truth is hard. But we know that grace is forgiving. And this, it's, it's, it's one of the tough parts of, of being a pastor is trying to present truth and grace. It's what I tried to do last week. I, I hope and pray that I did, and, and I hope and pray that I deliver it today the same way. As the Reverend Billy Graham once said, he said, I, I don't like to preach on it, talking about hell, the subject of hell. He said, I don't like to preach on it. I do it only because I'm commanded in Scripture to preach the Word, and it's against the backdrop of God's love and mercy and grace that I must preach it. So church, that, I'm telling you right now, it's against the backdrop of God's love, grace, and mercy that I must preach this today Here's, here's where we're at. As Christians, we love talking about heaven. Heaven is a wonderful subject. We love talking about heaven. We, we, we hold tight to the love of God. Let's talk about the love of God. Let's talk about the grace of God. We're okay with that. Let's talk about the mercy of God. But you bring up the subject of hell, and we get uncomfortable. You start talking about the wrath of God, and, and we start checking out. Because it feels less loving. It, it feels like there's no grace. It feels like there's no mercy. When we think that people might end up in eternal punishment, it feels like it, it contradicts with everything we want to believe about a, a loving, gracious, and merciful God. When we talk about that, when we, when we think about eternal punishment, it goes against the grain of what we feel like God is and who God is in our lives. When in reality, church, the fact that we have the opportunity to decide on whether or not we will trust in him is in itself an act of grace. That God didn't force you to serve him. That God gives you an opportunity to make a decision. It's this free will that we have, and it's an act of grace from a loving God that he does not force you to serve him. He does not force you to trust him. In the English Bible, the word hell is used 32 times, 32 times. But there are, however, 162 references about hell throughout the scriptures. 162 times we, we, we get to read about hell. The majority of all of the biblical teaching that we have on the subject of hell comes from Jesus Christ himself. So you don't have to go any farther than Christ. Jesus tells us almost everything we need to know uh, on the subject of hell. In fact, Jesus spoke about hell more than he talked about heaven. That's shocking to some. Jesus talked about hell more than he talked about heaven. 
In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus speaks about hell approximately 70 different times. 70 different times he he preaches on hell. If Jesus taught about hell, church, then the church should, should not, cannot ignore it. We cannot ignore it. We must preach about hell. And when Jesus taught on hell, you have to understand that he didn't sugarcoat it. He used verbiage that would entice fear. Some will be pulled from the flames because of fear. Listen, there are some things in my life that I'm letting you know I I did not do them. Something stupid that that my friends were trying to talk me in simply because I was afraid I didn't do it and it probably saved my life. You're asking what? Let us count the ways. Boys will be boys, right? You, you know what it's like. Sometimes fear can be a good thing. And, 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 and Jude said there's going to be moments when we have to pull people from the flames of hell. And we might have to put fear in them to do it. But it's a healthy fear. It's a healthy fear of God. Some people would have you believe that hell is a made-up place to encourage morality. That's really one of the teachings that's starting to to spread throughout Christianity now is that hell is just a made-up place to encourage morality. That in order for people to be good citizens of society, that they've got to be scared of punishment. That's the mindset. My question to that is, if there is no hell, why did Jesus spend so much time talking about it? Why did he dedicate so much time talking about hell if there is no literal hell? If there is no hell, then church, understand this, that the crucifixion of Jesus is useless and we should live our lives without moral standards because there are no consequences for our actions. But, but I, I want you to take his word for it, not mine. Matthew chapter 25, Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. These words are in red. This is Jesus speaking. I'm not adding to it. Listen to what he says as he describes his return and as he describes punishment and eternal life. So here it is. Matthew chapter 25, starting at verse 31. Jesus said, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, my right, your left. He will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Sorry, guys. Wrong place, wrong time, I guess. Sheep, goats. Verse 34 says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they, will also, then, then they also will answer saying, Lord, 
When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so he says the sheep, they're going to eternal life, but the goats, they are going to eternal punishment. This is not easy, church. The first question that has to be answered, though, is, is hell a literal place? Because if we're going to have a good theology on this, we've got to understand whether or not hell is a literal place or not. When Jesus said that he was going to separate the sheep from the goats, and the sheep will enter into the kingdom, and the goats will enter into eternal punishment, was he speaking literally or was he speaking figuratively? This is the debate among theologians, among pastors. Uh, I'm, I'm telling you, this is, is where we're at right now, trying to figure out if hell is a literal place. I recently heard a, a brilliant theologian and very popular minister describe hell as the never-ending flame that stirs up in the soul after an act of sin. He said, this is what hell is. It is a never-ending flame that stirs up in the soul after an act of sin. It destroys and devours the person and the people that love that person. And, and you know what? I, I get it. I get it. And, and, and though I get the, the sentiment of this, church, what if he's wrong? What if hell is more than just an internal feeling or an emotion or something that you've just got to live with for the rest of your life? What if it's more than that? I mean, we believe in the actual kingdom of heaven. Like, like here at DCC, we preach that, that one day Christ is coming to take his, his church to heaven. We believe in that. And if we believe in a literal place called heaven, then why wouldn't we believe in a literal place called hell that Jesus spoke about? Now, now let's get back to, to Christ and what he had to say about this. Jesus repeatedly used the Aramaic word Gehenna when referring to hell. Over and over again, he would, he would use the word Gehenna as he referenced hell. Eleven different times in the Gospels, Jesus refers to hell as Gehenna. And his listeners, they knew exactly where he, uh, what, what he was referring to because Gehenna was the valley of, of, of Hinnom outside the Dung Gate, which is south of the ancient city gates of Jerusalem. The valley is still there to this day. At that time in history, at the time of Christ, as he's teaching these people, as he refers to Gehenna, it was the city dump where not only were household garbage and human waste disposed of there, they would also discard the carcasses of dead animals, of criminals, and of outcasts of society. If no one was there to claim the dead body, they simply took that body to this valley called Gehenna, and they disposed of that body there. As a matter of fact, if you were crucified on a cross and no one came to claim your body off of that cross, they would take your body to Gehenna, to this valley, and that's where your body would be laid to rest, thrown into a pile with other bodies there it, it was the city dump and as you can imagine there was a stench that was associated with this 
It was also constantly on fire in an effort to destroy the garbage and, and the bodies that were there and all of the waste. And the reason why they, they chose this particular valley was because of the prevailing winds blowing through this valley that, that hopefully would carry the stench away from the city. And most of the time it would, not, not letting it blow back towards the city. This place, it, it, it had a terrible history. Dating all the way back to the Old Testament, when the Israelites, when the Hebrews came to the promised land, they found the, the Ammonites uh, in, in this particular area. And, and, and what they would do is they would sacrifice. Get this. They were sacrificing their own children to the god Moloch. And they were sacrificing their children to this god. And it all happened in this valley. The blood would run in this valley. It was a sick place. And so the Israelites, through the years, as they gained control of that area, they turned it into a city dump because they never wanted to, to, uh, their people to be reintroduced to such practices of, of aborting children, killing them before they have a chance to live out God's dreams for their lives. Many times Jesus would use this place to describe hell, Gehenna, a place of fiery punishment for the wicked is is how he would describe it. Gehenna, it was this place of agony, never-ending torment. No one just ever wanted to go hang out at Gehenna. No one just, just packed their lunch and on their lunch break went and sat in this valley and, and had lunch. And in an effort to try his best to get his listeners to understand the pain and torment of hell, Jesus used this valley as the descriptive analogy if you want to know what hell is like, go look at Gehenna. There was this moment in Luke chapter 16, and I've got to point this out to you. Again, Jesus, he, he's teaching, and, and, and he uses a parable. Now, now a parable is, is not true. It's a made-up story. Everyone knows that he's, he's trying to teach. It's, it's, a, it's a lesson, that, and this is, is an illustration, if you will, that he's using but he uses this particular parable, this made-up story, that to try and relate to his listeners the urgency of choosing their eternity, of putting their trust in God, and ultimately their trust in him. And so I want you to listen to this parable that Jesus tells. It's very interesting. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. Jesus is speaking, and he says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. Now I want to pause there just for a moment, because verse 22 teaches us so much. Listen to these words again. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. Church, let me tell you what this says to me. It tells me that death is a conjunction, not a period. This is the hope that we have as believers. For those of you in the room that are believers, this is the hope that we have. That, that death is a conjunction. It's, it's not the end. It, it, it's, it's necessary to get us from this life to the next life. It's a conjunction both for uh, the righteous and unfortunately for the wicked. Listen, if you don't know Christ today, if you've never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, it, it explains what happens here also. 
this transition, if you will. Listen to verse 23. Let me go back to verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither would they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Church, I hope you're picking up everything that's being laid down here because this is one of the most interesting tales. This story is, is unbelievable. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, making up this parable, an earthly story that describes this eternal principle. Okay, What he is teaching is truth. Even through the, the fiction of the story, the, the principle here is, is about eternity. And, and this parable was different than all of the others that Jesus had told. As a matter of fact, his listeners standing there, they, they had to understand that this one was a little bit different because in all of the other parables, Jesus never gave the people that he's talking about names. Never. Go look at it. He never gave them names. There was the woman with the lost coin. It was a woman with a lost coin. We don't know her name. In that parable, Jesus does not give her a name. There was the prodigal son. No name. His father, no name. And his older brother, no name. There was the wise man that built his house on a rock. No name. The foolish man that built his house on sand. No name. There was the shepherd that left the 99 to go find the one lost sheep, but there is no name. Never does he give the subjects of his parables names, not until this one. In talking about death and life and life after death, as he's standing there teaching and preaching, I picture him looking around the crowd as he's talking, and he locks eyes with his friend Lazarus. Lazarus had to be there. Come on. He's one of the, the closest followers, one of the best friends of Christ. If he's in the area, he's going to be there. And, and I'm taking some creative liberties here, but just understand, he had to be thinking about that Lazarus. And for the first time, he gives someone a name in a parable, and he uses his friend Lazarus as an example. And I can picture Lazarus' face, as Jesus said in verse 20, and at this gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. Couldn't you see Lazarus? He's like, <laughs> it's me. It's me, he's using me, he's using me. And the disciples, they're like, yeah, but you're poor. You're poor. Poor Lazarus, you need a handout, buddy? Jesus continued as he taught about how extremely different their reward and punishment were in the afterlife, the poor man and the rich man. First of all, the rich man in Hades, he wants water for the tip of his tongue. That's how miserable it is. Father, Abraham, please, 
just send Lazarus just to touch his finger, just dip his finger in water and just touch my tongue. That's all I need. Just, it's so horrible here. And when that request was denied, the rich man becomes concerned with his, his family members who are still alive. And, and he wants so badly for someone just to go to them and to warn his brothers of, of, of this eternal torment. And he says, just send Lazarus. Please, Abraham, just send Lazarus. If someone from the dead visits them, then they will believe in Abraham. In this parable, Jesus has Abraham saying, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, that's the Old Testament church, He says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And it's in that one statement that that we now know why he chose to give the poor man a name and specifically the name Lazarus. Because Lazarus, church, don't forget this, Lazarus was proof that Jesus was the resurrection and the life. He was walking, breathing proof that that Jesus was the resurrection and the life, yet they still did not believe it. They knew that man was dead for four days. They watched him and they watched his family mourn over him. But, But many of them were there when Jesus said, move that stone away, Lazarus come forth. And he came walking out of that tomb. He was the resurrection and the life, but they still wouldn't believe it, even though a dead man was now living. I picture a holy hush coming over the crowd. Jesus saying something like, if they won't believe the scriptures, they won't believe in resurrection, not even if the dead man is standing right in front of them. Can you imagine the conviction that fell upon that crowd in that moment? There's absolutely nothing in scripture that suggests that hell was a metaphor for earthly trials trials or mental distress. Church, it's just not there. It's not there. The only analogy used was Gehenna to describe the fire, the stench, and the torment of hell. But don't miss one of the most important details of this parable that Jesus told. He gave the poor man a name, but he didn't give the rich man a name. He didn't assign him a name. A man that lived his life off of his notoriety and importance was not even given a name. What does that tell us? It means that you can have all the money in the world. But church, if you don't have Jesus, you chose your notoriety over your Savior. It means you can have all the riches, but if you don't have Jesus, you can have all the popularity and be liked by everyone, but if you don't have Jesus, listen, you can be the nicest person on this planet. We're not even talking about people that, that are just, just rank sinners. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about people that simply have not trusted their life to Jesus Christ. They have not put their trust in him as their Lord and as their Savior. You can be the best person possible. But if you don't have Jesus, your eternal punishment will be hell. Unlike heaven, where there's a beautiful reunion and rejoicing with our Father God and Jesus Christ and our our loved ones who were believers... One of the characteristics of hell is eternal separation. Wrap your mind around this, church. Separation from everything that we have known, that we have loved, everything that we have cherished in life 
Imagine being separated from that. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, it says, Inflaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. You hear it? It saddens me, church, that some people right now, they want nothing to do with God. And little do they know that in eternity, they might get exactly what they want. Nothing to do with God. In this human life, we have this natural desire for another chance, another opportunity, if you will. It, it's just kind of ingrained in us. When something doesn't go right, we want to do over. Students who miss the grade by a few points, they, they want an, a, a, a shot at extra credit. They beg their teacher, can I, can I, just, can I just have another chance, just one more chance to make the grade. Sports teams, they want one more inning, one more quarter, one more set, one more half. Golfers want one more hole. Racers want one more lap. My, my son, I know he hates it when I tell this, but in high school when he had the chance to, to win the basketball game, and he, all he had to do was hit one free throw to tie it up, two to win it, and he missed both. We lost the game. He just wanted one more chance, just one more free throw. That's all we need is just one more. And as, as human beings, here's, here's the truth. We don't like finality. That's what we have a hard time with. That's the reason why so many of us struggle with death is because we feel like it's so final. And humanity struggles with this until we wrap our minds around the theology of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're always going to struggle with the finality of this. That's why humanity finds the finality of hell so difficult for us to grasp. We don't want to buy into the fact that once we die, our eternal destination is set in stone and there is nothing that we can do about it. Hebrews 9 and 27 and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So the scripture is plain. We get to live one life, that's it. You die, and then you face judgment. Everyone in this room, it is appointed unto every one of us. It, that day is coming. You live, you die, and you face judgment. There's no second chances after death. Think about that. There's no second chances after death. But man, you've got all the chances you need right now. His grace is here with us right now. The second chance, the God of the second chance, he's extending that to us right now. The great Bible teacher of prophecy and eschatology, Grant R. Jeffrey, he once said, the ultimate tragedy is that all those who end in hell will have chosen it. Instead of accepting that we are all sinners in need of the salvation of Jesus Christ, their pride condemns them to spiritual death. And in the end, someone must be God of our lives. If we insist on being our own God, we shall succeed, but at the cost of an eternity in hell. I know the question that's going through some of your minds, so I want to answer this. Why would a loving God send anyone to an eternal hell? Some of you wonder that. 
young and old alike, it's something that we struggle with. Why would a loving God, a merciful God, a gracious God, why would he send someone to an eternal hell? And and the, the answer is really this simple. He doesn't. God doesn't. Hell is not full of people that God rejected. Hell will be full of people that rejected God. His arms are wide open for us to run to Him. In this moment right now, He has so much love for you. One of the biggest differences between me and Jonathan Edwards, because as I read this, man, he talks about the anger of God and how, I mean, it, it's, it, it's, it's, it's troubling. That even in those moments that God's wrath, God just wanted to to barbecue those people. No! Right now, God is so in love with you. If you want to know why we have salvation calls at DCC almost every week. It's because of this one verse, and, and it's, it's just been haunting me for the past few years. Isaiah 5 and 14. It says, Therefore hell hath enlarged herself and opened her mouth without measure. Hell is getting bigger. Hell is expanding. And as Christ followers, this should haunt us. This should keep us up at night. Because hell is getting bigger and I want to stop construction. If you're uncertain if you will spend eternity in heaven or hell, you can be certain of your eternal destination today. Trust me. Before you walk out of this room, you're going to have that opportunity. God sent his son so that no one would have to experience a place that Jesus said in our text today is prepared for Satan and his angels, his fallen angels. Jesus said that. He said hell's not meant for you. It's meant for Satan and his fallen angels. Christ has come so that we can find a way out of that. But because God is good, his desire is for All to repent from our sinful nature. Two more verses, but you gotta hear them. You gotta hear them. You've got to wrap your mind around these two verses. Second Peter three and nine. It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. Now here's what he's talking about: the return of Christ. We've been hearing about this our whole lives. He says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Listen to Romans chapter 9, verse 22. He says, in the same way, even though God has the right to show his anger and his power, he is very patient with those on whom his anger falls who are destined for destruction. That means if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, For your sake, he's holding back the return of his son to come and get his bride, to get his church. For your sake, his grace and his mercy is holding back 
the end of this world as we know it all for you, simply for you because he loves you that much. Scripture says that that he's patient with those on whom his anger falls. Listen, he may not be pleased with you, but he loves you and he's holding it back. In the end, God cannot be blamed. We decide our own fate, but he's holding off the return of Christ for you today in this moment. But you have to understand, time is running out. In in closing, just let me paint this picture for you. It's estimated that 55.3 million people die every year. 55.3 million people die every year. 151,500 people die every day. 6,313 die every hour. And 105 people die every minute. 105 people die every minute. In this short time that we've been together today, between 8 and 10,000 people have entered into eternity Uh, Let me show you what this looks like. A Boeing 747, a jumbo jet, it holds approximately 500 passengers. While in church together in this service today, not both services, just this service, roughly 19 747s has been filled with people entering into eternity. And it, it saddens me on how many of them rejected the grace of God the forgiveness of God and the Son of God. And they entered into eternity without Him. I don't want anyone in this room to go without an opportunity to know before you walk out of this room, beyond a shadow of a doubt, to know where your eternity stands. This is that moment that you have to check your spirit. You have to take a a hard inventory inside, and you've got to be certain. One thing that Jonathan Edwards did in that sermon is repeatedly he told them, and I agree with him on this, he told them, basically, you're not guaranteed tomorrow that some of you could die on the way home. It's true. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. But we can have security and eternal life through Jesus Christ. So that when death happens, it's just a conjunction that leads us into the presence of the Lord. Thanks for listening to the Destiny Community Church Podcast. To learn more about DCC, including our service times and location, visit us at destinycommunitychurch.org.